Most of the rest of the time we see Jesus who is calm, who is gentle, who is poised, uh, whose response is always soft and quiet. But in this case, we see him physically uh, violent in his anger. Instead of uh, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, we sort of have a picture here of Gentile Jesus, mean and wild. And this has created a lot of problems for commentators. So let's read verses 11 through 19, and then we'll go back and see if we can understand what's going on here. Verse 11 begins, He entered Jerusalem. Uh, If you glance at the preceding context, you'll realize this is immediately following the triumphal entry when he was escorted into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey, a ticker tape parade there by all the residents of Jerusalem who threw their cloaks down in his path and waved palm fronds to celebrate the man they recognized as the Messiah. He comes into Jerusalem, verse 11, and came into the temple, and after looking all around... He departed for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Most likely, he and the disciples stayed with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus at their home in Bethany. It was less than two miles from Jerusalem, so it made a convenient place to stay for the Passover week. And on the next day, verse 12, when they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf... He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who were selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you, it's emphatic in the Greek, you have made it a robber's den." And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Now the first thing we're told in verse 11 is that when Jesus came into Jerusalem on the day of the triumphal entry, he entered the temple precincts, and we're told quite plainly, Mark says, that he looked all around, that he took a careful notice of everything that was going on in the temple precinct. He observed everything. And I think Mark's point is that what he saw were the money changers who were changing money. He saw those who were selling doves. He saw those who were buying and selling other goods in the temple precincts. He observed all of this on that inspection. This was the king coming to his palace and seeing what what the renegade servants had done to it. But Mark tells us it was late in the day when he did this, too late for him to do anything. And so with his twelve, he departed for Bethany. Now the next morning in verse 12, as they're walking on the trail from Bethany to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus became hungry. This would have been early in the morning, and evidently they didn't want to trouble Martha for breakfast. I imagine from what we know of her, she could be a grouch at six in the morning without her coffee. And... uh, They figured they'd just grab something on the way. 
And so Jesus, as they're walking on the trail, saw a fig tree which was fully leafed out. It was green and full. And he saw this from a distance, and this was the closest you could get to breakfast to go. So he went up to the drive through branch there on the fig tree and looked for some figs to go. And he examined that fig tree very carefully and found no figs anywhere on this tree. Not a single one. Looked at the front, looked at the back, looked at the sides. No figs anywhere. Beautiful green leafy tree, no figs. And then he stood back after looking carefully all through this fig tree, searching for figs. He stood back and in a voice that was plainly loud enough for the disciples to hear, maybe pointed his finger at this tree and leveled a curse at it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And in the Greek, that's very strong. He uses a double negative. May no one never, not ever, eat fruit from you forever. Uses two double negatives plus the expression that means forever. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, the thing that is confusing about this is that Mark also tells us quite plainly that it was not the season for figs. So that, and Jesus had grown up in Palestine. He grew up in Galilee, which is the most fertile part of the land, and he knew exactly what the growing season for figs was. He knew that they didn't ripen until June. This would have been late March or early April, right in the middle of tax season. Perhaps you can understand him wanting to destroy something in tax season, but that's not the, that's not the explanation. So he knew when he approached this fig tree, he knew when he went up to this tree that he wasn't going to find any figs because it was not the season for figs. You wouldn't expect to find figs on a tree until at least the middle of June. Now some commentators think that he was looking for little pre-figs or little tiny green hard figs that appear on a tree about this time of year. But they're very bitter to the taste and disagreeable, and no one eats them, and they fall off the tree after a matter of days. And if Jesus had been looking for those kind of figs, then Mark would have said it was the season for figs, because that's when those figs grew. But it says that the kind of figs that Jesus was looking for, it wasn't the season for them. So Jesus clearly knew that he was not going to find any figs on this tree. And yet... He steps back and curses this tree, as we'll see later, right out of existence. Now, this is what has troubled commentators because it looks as if Jesus just got torqued at this tree because it left him hungry. He came up to this tree hungry, went away hungry, and sort of a fit of pique used his power to destroy this poor, innocent, helpless uh, fig tree. And this has led some educated commentators. Now, I'm going to read you a couple of quotes from people who are doctors in theology, like have been to really major seminaries. This is what they say. This is by a commentator by the name of Manson. That may tell you all you need to know right there. (laughs) But he says this about this story. It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. And as it stands, it is simply incredible. Here's William Barclay. You're familiar with him, many of you. This story does not ring true. The whole incident does not seem worthy of Jesus. There seems a certain petulance in it. Worse, the whole action was unreasonable. Might as well close our Bibles and go home, but we've got about 25 minutes to kill, so what the hey, let's give it a shot. 
Now, I think the, the key to understanding what's going on here is, is the two hints that Mark drops to us in this paragraph. The first thing he tells us, as we've already seen, is that it was not the season for figs. That Jesus knew good and well that when he went up to that tree, no matter how closely he examined it, he would find no figs on that tree. Now, what this suggests to me is that what Jesus is doing here is giving the disciples what we might call an enacted parable. This was a living parable, a walking parable parable, that this fig tree was a symbol for something else, that Jesus was treating this fig tree as a symbol for something else. And Mark gives us the other hint later when he says that the disciples were listening. In other words, Jesus staged this episode with the fig tree for the benefit of the disciples. He was intending to teach his disciples something and was using the fig tree And using it as the Lord of nature, who had every right to do so because he created this fig tree, using this fig tree as an object lesson for his disciples. Well, the question is, what is the object that he was trying to communicate? What was the lesson that he was trying to communicate to these disciples? Well, I think one significant thing is to observe the way in which Mark has woven this story into his account. You notice that this episode begins with Jesus going into the temple and looking all around the temple. Then, the next morning, he sees this fig tree on the way into the temple, curses the fig tree, then goes into the temple he'd examined the day before and starts tearing the place apart. And then, as we'll see in just a few moments, the next day they come back and have another discussion about the fig tree. So Mark is very careful to interweave these two stories. The story of the fig tree and the story of the cleansing of the temple are woven into one continuous narrative. And I think what Mark means to tell us is that this fig tree stood as a symbol for the temple. In other words, just as Jesus on the preceding day had come into the temple, had looked all around the temple precincts and found nothing, found instead of food and nourishment and righteousness, found hypocrisy and greed and covetousness. So he had examined this fig tree carefully and thoroughly, looked all over it and found nothing but leaves. And just as Jesus cursed that fig tree, so he was the same day following their encounter with this fig tree, so he was going to curse the temple. And I believe the fig tree was an apt symbol for the temple. Mark notes that Jesus saw the tree from a distance and that it was full of leaves. It had fully leafed out. That is, from the standpoint of appearance, if you were to look at this fig tree from a distance, it looked like a place where a hungry man could be fed. But when a hungry man approached this fig tree, which appeared to offer food and nourishment and life, same individual would go away just as hungry as he came, completely disillusioned by the appearance of this fig tree. Now, what Jesus is pointing out is people had the same experience with the temple. In other words, from a distance, the temple looked like a place where spiritually hungry people could be nourished. Spiritually hungry people could be fed, particularly as they came from Bethany using a a little mountain pass, mountain trail. As they came around the last corner, they would see the temple resplendent in the sunlight, the white marble and the gold glistening. The uh, holy place standing above it all, this on the highest point in in Jerusalem. And it would have been a a sight that would literally take your breath away. The Jews used to say, you've never seen a beautiful building until you've seen Herod's temple. 
It looked like a place where hungry people from all over the world could come and be fed, could find life-changing truth about the living God. But instead, Jesus discovered on his inspection the day before, when people approached the temple looking to be fed, they went away as hungry as they came, disillusioned by the appearance of life, but finding it uh, empty and finding their experience utterly dissatisfying and disillusioning. Now let's look at what Jesus does when he comes to the temple. Verse 15, we're told that he began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. It's important at this point to understand what was going on in the temple at this point. Uh, This was the Passover celebration, and Jews and God-fearing Gentiles from all over the world would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at this time of year. And they would participate, many of them for the only time in that calendar year, participate in, in worship to God, offering acceptable sacrifices to the true God. Now, naturally, in order to offer sacrifices to God, you had to have sacrificial animals. Well, if you're coming from Crete or someplace like that, it's kind of hard to lug a Passover lamb several hundred miles to Jerusalem. It's much more convenient to take some money with you and to simply buy a sacrificial lamb or what other sacrificial animals you might want to use after you reached Jerusalem. Well, and up until 30 A.D., just three years prior to this, the Sanhedrin had very graciously ran several shops on the Mount of Olives where you could by sacrificial animals. Well, the chief priests who controlled the temple precincts got to looking at that and said, why should they have all the fun? Uh, Let's open up our own bazaars. Let's open up our own little sacrificial flea market right here in the temple. And uh, we can start raking in some of the profits that the members of the Sanhedrin have been enjoying. Now, you realize they had a monopoly on this trade. This was, uh, if there was ever a seller's market, uh, this was it. Because the chief priests were the ones that controlled the priests. The priests were the ones who had to pass inspection on any sacrificial animal that you wanted to offer. So what would often happen is someone would buy a sacrificial animal on the outside from some street vendor there, bring this Passover lamb into the temple precincts, the priest would stop you right there at a little uh, little metal detector right there, and he'd stop you and examine your lamb, and he would say, oh, I'm really sorry, but this lamb's got a cavity right back here, third molar. I'm sorry, you cannot offer this lamb for sacrifice, but you're in luck. We're running a blue light special right over here on yearlings. You can get one for only twenty nine ninety five. Now, you'd already paid $9.95 for this lamb on the outside, but they could charge you basically whatever they wanted on the inside because if you wanted to offer sacrifice, you had to offer an animal without blemish. Who decided that? The priests decided that. Now, what really enraged Jesus is that even the people who were selling doves were doing this to people. Now, the doves were sacrificial animals that were an alternative to the poor. If you couldn't afford a lamb, or if you wanted to offer some other sacrifice and couldn't afford a calf or a bullock or a goat, you could offer in its place a dove. In fact, Jesus' parents were so poor that when they consecrated him, this is what they offered, a sacrifice of two doves. And according to sources at this time, 
we discover that sacrificial doves were sold in the temple precincts for 20 times what they would go for on the outside of the temple precincts. So what Jesus saw is these spiritually hungry people coming to the temple from all over the world, and as soon as they walked in the temple precincts, people started picking their pockets, fleecing them, extorting money from them. And Jesus also observed money changers at work here in the temple. And there was a further complication in that it, the Jews had a distinctive view about coinage. Coinage, there were no such things as dollar bills at that time, paper currency. Everything was in coins. And it was quite common throughout the Roman world for the ruler of a territory to mint coins with his image on it, his inscription on it. Remember the dialogue that Jesus had with the Pharisees when he asked them for a coin and said, whose image is on this coin? And it was the image of Caesar, Tiberius, at that point quite common. Well, the pious Jews, the ones who ran the temple, for example, looked at that as a form of idolatry. There were certain Jewish rabbis, for instance, who prided themselves on the fact that they had, let alone not handled money, they never even looked at a piece of coinage that had uh, an individual person's inscription on it. So the Jews would say, who were running the temple precincts, that if you want to buy sacrificial animals here in the temple, or if you want to pay the temple tax, which was collected every year at this time, you're going to have to use the right kind of coinage. Now, we just so happen to have a little exchange booth, a little currency exchange booth set up right over here, and for a slight overage, we will convert your national coinage into acceptable coinage. And so they would rake a percentage off the top, anywhere from a 20 to 40% surcharge they would tack on to people who would bring their currency into the temple precincts. So everywhere you looked, you saw people being ripped off, all in the name of the true God, the God of Israel. And Jesus had observed all of this the day before. And this infuriated him. It enraged him. It turned him livid with anger. I think that's a really instructive thing, for one thing. It's often, we're often taught that the mark of Christ's likeness is a total absence of anger. Someone who shows equanimity and poise and in all circumstances. But that's not the picture of Christ's likeness that we're given in the New Testament. There are some things that ought to make us angry, and angry enough to do something, as Jesus did in this case. There ought to be some things that so upset us and enrage us that we're compelled to step in and to do something about it. There are certain things, if we witness them, if we observe them, and it does not make us angry, there's something wrong with us. Now, Jesus was, if you look at his life, you'll see a model of the appropriate kind of anger because Jesus was never angry in his own defense or in his own behalf. And that's where we often make the mistakes. Quite often, our anger is triggered simply by a desire to assert or claim our own rights. Somebody cuts us off in traffic and we get enraged. Uh, we rarely get upset if we see somebody else cut off in traffic. Well, that kind of anger when we're upset simply out of a desire to assert our own rights or out of our own injury, is never acceptable. To express anger, to act out anger in those circumstances, is never right. In fact, Jesus went to the cross, suffered a cruel and unjust death, was railroaded into his own death, and yet did so without a word of protest or anger. But 
when Jesus saw someone else being mistreated, when he saw someone else being taken advantage of and abused and misused, this made him angry and angry enough to do something. So when we see that around us, when we see spousal abuse, for instance, when we see wives battered into submission, or when we see child abuse or child molestation, these are the sorts of things that ought to arouse in us an instinct of anger and a willingness to do something about it. Now, that's what Jesus did. He came into the temple precincts, and this would have been in the outer court, what is called the court of the Gentiles. There were several different regions in the temple precincts. The outer court was called the court of the Gentiles. This is where anyone could come. Then beyond that, there was a low wall, about three feet high, beyond which no Gentile could pass. And as you got closer to the Holy of Holies, each little precinct got progressively more sacred. And so the Sadducees held this bazaar out in the court of the Gentiles, not in the court of Israel, where only Jews could go. In fact, Gentiles could not cross this little barrier uh, unless they were willing to forfeit their lives. This was the one thing, the one area, the one offense that the Romans would allow Jews to put people to death for on their own authority, and that was for violating the sanctity of the temple precincts. That one didn't have to be cleared with Rome. In fact, that was the charge on which Paul almost lost his life. He was accused of bringing a friend from Asia inside the temple precincts across that little three-foot retaining wall from the court of Gentiles into the court of Israel. So this bazaar was set up out in the court of the Gentiles. So Jesus came in, and in his anger, he began to overturn the tables of the money changers. Now, the way they would change money would be to have simply have stacks of coins set up on these tables. Now, I expect when Jesus came and just took the front end of that table and just dumped it on the floor, that there would have been coins scattered all over that outer precinct. And I can just picture these money changers down on the floor, scrabbling all over the place, trying to reclaim every lost quarter and dime. He overturned the seats of those who were selling doves. And so you've got squawking, you've got money clanking all over the place. So Jesus completely interrupted what was going on in the outer temp- in the outer precinct there. And we're told in verse 16 that he wouldn't permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. A couple of ways to understand this. One is that it's possible that people were using the temple precinct as a shortcut from downtown to the suburbs, since it was more direct. It had so little regard for the sanctity of the temple that they simply used it as a shortcut, and he stopped them. At that point, or I think it's more likely that what Jesus did here is he stopped the whole sacrificial process. In other words, for sacrifices to be carried out, coals had to be carried in, sacrificial animals and pieces and parts had to be carried in, blood and carcasses and so forth had to be carried out. And Jesus, at this point, I think, put a stop to everything that was going on in the temple not only overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves, but he put a complete stop to the whole sacrificial system. And I think what Jesus is doing in that act is placing his curse on the temple, just as he'd done to the fig tree. This was his way of saying to the temple, the day is going to come when no one will eat fruit from you again. The day is going to come when the sacrificial system is going to be completely shut down. Now, Jesus explains what he is doing in verse 17 and why he's doing it. 
He says he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. I think the key phrase in that statement, it's a quote from Isaiah 56, the key phrase in there is that Jesus says that that my house was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. That's the same word that elsewhere in the New Testament is translated Gentiles. That the house of God was to be a house of prayer for all the Gentiles. And yet, Jesus says, you have turned this into a robber's den or a robber's cave. Many of the pilgrims would come up by the... By the road that came from Jericho to Jerusalem. This is through narrow defiles, mountain passes, and there were often highwaymen and bandits who would lurk in caves along that road. And they would uh, hijack uh, pilgrims and rip them off, mug them, and go back to their robbers' caves. And what Jesus is saying is you've turned the whole temple into one of those robbers' dens, just a place where people are being ripped off and extorted. And yet this house that you've turned into a robber's den was designed to be a house of prayer for the Gentiles. I think what particularly upset Jesus is that this court where all of these transactions were taking place, this was the only place in the temple that Gentiles could come. This was the only place they could come to get a glimpse of what true worship was like, a glimpse of what the true God was like. So what did a Gentile who wanted to worship the true God find? Did he find a place where he could pray, where he could worship? No, as a Gentile came in, what he saw was people hollering about exchange rates, saw coins clanking, pigeon droppings all over the floor, and would turn away in total disillusionment. And this is what upset the Lord. And he said, you'll notice Jesus says, you've done this to my house. You notice that? My house. He says, you've done this in my living room, and I'm throwing you out of my house because you've turned my house, place of prayer for all the nations, into a robber's den. Well, naturally, this did not sit well with the chief priests and scribes, and so they, in verse 18, were told, began looking for a way to destroy him. They had to do it secretly because the crowd was amazed at his teaching. They'd probably been waiting for years for somebody to do this, to these jokers in the temple precincts, and none of them had had the courage to do it themselves. And so they were blown away. The word there for astonished means literally to be struck out of their senses, just blew their minds. They were astonished and amazed at the courage and the boldness of Jesus here. And so the chief priests knew they were going to have to take him into custody on the sly, and that was the reason for the arrest at night and the need for someone on the inside to betray him. They simply could not take him into custody in public. And so after this event was over, Jesus and the disciples, verse 19, went back out of the city. Now the next day, verse 20, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Same fig tree that Jesus had cursed the day before was now withered entirely from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. Therefore I say to you, 
All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. Now it's interesting to observe, first of all, that the withering of this fig tree took somewhere up to 24 hours to take place. In other words, when Jesus cursed it the previous day, nothing happened immediately. In other words, as they left that fig tree the previous morning, it looked just like they did when they walked up, leafy and healthy. It was only the next day, after the passage of time, that they saw the effects of the curse. I think what Jesus is doing here is indicating that when... He brings his judgment down on something like the temple. Judgment is not always affected immediately. It may take a passage of time before his judgment becomes evident, before his judgment becomes apparent. The Jews had a proverb that the mills of God's justice grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. Now, Jesus, I believe, the previous day had placed the same sort of curse on the temple that he had done on the fig tree. The fig tree was a symbol of what would happen to the temple. And in point of fact, the temple was withered from the roots up in 70 A.D. It took 37 years for this curse to be carried out, for the judgment to be rendered on the temple. But when it happened, it was complete. The temple was withered from the roots up. In fact, the temple was completely destroyed. It was built of massive stones, some of them 25 feet by 40 feet. And yet when the Roman soldiers in 70 A.D. destroyed the temple, they burned it, and the, burn, the fire caused gold to melt down into the cracks between these massive stones. And the Roman soldiers got in there and pried these massive stones apart to get at the gold. So literally not one stone of this temple was left standing upon another. It was withered from the roots up. Now, the significant thing to me is that Jesus says to us, and this is what we want to close with, the climax of this is that Jesus says in verse 23 that anyone can do this. We look at Jesus placing this sort of judgment on the temple, and we say, well, sure, he could do that. He was God, after all. But notice that Jesus says in verse 23, whoever says to this mountain and believes in his heart, will be able to cast that mountain into the sea. Anyone can do to this temple what I have done, call down God's judgment upon it. And that's why his first word to Peter, when Peter asks him about the cursing of the fig tree, is have faith in God. Because you, too, have the same capacity, the same authority, the same privilege that I have to call down God's judgment on a ministry that is riddled with hypocrisy and greed and self-righteousness and covetousness. Now, casting a mountain into the sea was a Jewish metaphor for something which was impossible. If you looked at that temple standing there in the sunlight, massive and imposing, it took 63 years for Herod to complete the remodeling of that place, You'd think it's impossible for this thing ever to be destroyed. This will last for the ages. This will still be here in 1989. But Jesus says, if you have faith in God, even this mountain, notice that he says in verse 23, whoever says to this mountain, I think Jesus was referring specifically to the mountain on which the temple stood. Whoever says to this mountain, 
be cast into the sea, it will be done for him. I think it's important to take then the prayer that Jesus instructs us to to make here in, in context. This isn't an absolute guarantee that any prayer that we pray will be answered, but a prayer like this one will be answered. God will hear and he will judge a ministry which is as riddled with hypocrisy as the temple was. Now that's kind of a frightening thought if you realize it, the sort of power that Jesus has given to us. But I think he's suggesting that this is how we are to respond as believers when we come across a ministry or a minister who from a distance appears to offer people life, who is carrying out a ministry which he proclaims as a place where people can be fed and can be nourished, but instead is simply ripping people off, lining his own pockets with the gifts of those whom he's conned into supporting his ministry, the proper thing to do is to ask God to cast that mountain into the sea. And if you believe in your heart that God will do it, he will do it. In his timing, he will bring his judgment down on that ministry and cast it into the sea. I think that's a pretty amazing sort of uh, authority that Jesus has granted to us. My guess is that some of the the, uh, visible collapses of certain ministries over the last five or six years that we've seen in our country have been the result of people praying prayers like this, saying, Lord, it's simply not right for people to do that and to get away with it. It's simply not right. Would you judge them for that? And God says, yes, as a matter of fact, I will. Now, Jesus concludes in verse 25 with another saying, which people have often taken out of context. It seems to many commentators that Jesus is just kind of stringing together a series of unrelated homilies here at the end. But Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, well, praying for what? Praying for God to bring down his judgment on a ministry that is riddled with hypocrisy. Forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven also may forgive you. Well, what's the point of that in this context, in this flow of thought? Well, Jesus is saying, if you ask God to judge hypocrisy and self-righteousness and conceit and hardness of heart and stubbornness, you'd better be sure that you're not asking him to judge you, because he's quite impartial in these things. So you better be sure if you're asking God to clean up somebody else's house that you swept off your own front porch. And this is what keeps us, see, from praying that kind of a prayer with a spirit of self-righteousness or arrogance or smugness is that we realize that we ourselves are trespassers and that we stand in desperate need of God's forgiveness. In fact, our need for forgiveness from Him is greater than the need for forgiveness that the people we are observing are. We stand in greater need of grace even than they do. If we understand that, that protects us from praying the sort of prayer in which we ask God to judge a ministry. It keeps us from praying that with a spirit of pride and, and uh, hardness of heart. You, know, you notice that Jesus says that you are to forgive if you have anything against anyone. In other words, what Jesus does is call us here as believers to extend forgiveness to anyone, no matter how deeply they have hurt us or wounded us. Jesus doesn't try to deal with this problem by trying to get us to think that the offense is really not all that serious. 
He says, you have something against someone. They may have wounded you, badly misused you, and mistreated you. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, to us, that the one thing we must never do is we must never say, I cannot forgive him, I cannot forgive her for what they have done to me. We must be prepared, Jesus says, to extend forgiveness to anyone, no matter how deep-seated the offense against us or against someone we love is. And Jesus says we must be prepared to do that if we want to lay claim to God's forgiveness. You notice the order here? It's a very striking thing that Jesus says. If you want the forgiveness of the Father, he says, you must, first of all, forgive others. And we think that we look at that and we think, well, that's backwards. You know, if John MacArthur said that, we could say, well, yeah, he's just getting mixed up here. But Jesus is the one that said this, that if you want the Father to forgive you, you must, first of all, Commit yourself, be prepared and willing to pursue forgiving anyone who has harmed you, has injured you, and to do so from the heart. Well, those are the lessons I think that we can learn from this passage in closing. One is to realize the awesome authority that that Jesus has given to us here. That we do have the, the power to call down his judgment on ministries that are that claim to offer life to people, but instead are mistreating them, taking advantage of them. And secondly, Jesus warns us that in so doing, we must be sure that we have dealt with sin in our own lives, that we are not harboring some kind of a grudge or nursing some sort of resentment against someone for the way in which they have treated us. Let's pray and we'll be done. Father, we realize it is a difficult thing to extend forgiveness to those who have wounded us and hurt us. And yet, Lord, you tell us here that if we refuse to extend this forgiveness to others, it will rob us of your life. It will create distance between us and you and cut us off from the supply of your your riches. So I pray, Lord, as each of us examines our hearts at this point, if there's anyone to whom we need to extend unconditional forgiveness. Pray that you would enable us to do it. We realize, Lord, that we do not have the capacity to generate this sort of forgiveness, that we must depend upon you, the one who at the cross could say, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Help us to do that, Lord, to genuinely forgive from the heart any family members, any friends, any people in business who have wronged us to do so and to do so from the heart. Help us, Lord, to recognize the power that we have to uh, bring your judgment down upon ministries which are deceptive and misleading and misusing people. Help us to use it sparingly. Prevent us from ever using that sort of authority with a spirit of self-righteousness or condemnation or smugness. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.